Welcome to Target Cancer Podcast. My name is Dr. Sanjay Janeja. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, also known as the Onc Doc on social media. And today is such an exciting episode for me. I've literally, not exaggerating, just been thinking about it like, like Christmas. And it's because I get to have, for the 50th podcast recording on Tar Target Cancer Podcast, some of my favorite people that I honestly mean it when I say inspire me to do the most I can in oncology to help patients to really be humble about what kind of strength and courage there is in this world. And those are the guests that we're going to speak with today. And that's not an exaggeration. And I really hope um, you'll check out, you know, their philosophy and what they're doing with the world because it's extremely humbling and inspirational. So Kelly, Bethany, Aaron, thank y'all so, so, so much for being here. This is a super exciting episode for me. And, um, and I basically have no script. This is one that's unscripted and I want to like just ask different kinds of questions um, because y'all are just a wealth of information and inspiration and that will not be the last time I was saying that. So, uh, let's go ahead and do some quick introductions if y'all don't mind. And if you're comfortable sharing, you know, diagnosis, if you're not awesome stage, whatever, but, uh, I'll start with Kelly Thomas. Um, Kelly, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Well, thank you for you having me. Hi, my name is Kelly Thomas, better known as I am Kelly Thomas. I am five-year stage 3C triple negative breast cancer survivor. I am the founder of TMBC Thrivers on Instagram, and I am also the monthly virtual Zoom chat host for the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation. Oh, that's fun. Love it. We met serendipitous. So we all have our own stories on who we met on social that hopefully we can get to. And then I'll start with, uh, go to Bethany Webb, who I've gotten to know really well in the last couple of months. How are you, Bethany? Yeah. Oh, God, I'm awesome. I'm so happy to be here, too. This is such a privilege to be here with all of you. So, yeah, I'm Bethany Webb. I am a mindset coach, stage four breast cancer thriver, and also author of this sweet little book, Baby. Her name is My Guru Cancer. And um, yeah, I'm just so excited to be with all of you and chat. I wish I brought your book. I meant to. Uh, yeah. And definitely, I'm oh, sure good. we'll get you too. And then we have Aaron Soto. Aaron, I'm getting to know better recently, but you're doing amazing things online. Um, tell us about yourself. Yeah. So I'm Aaron Soto. I'm a stage three colorectal cancer survivor and um, also an author of a book uh, called The Mother of All Fights. Everything cancer taught me about living a, we'll grab it, a vibrant life and fire. Also, um, I create online programs for cancer thrivers and survivors and anyone really just wanting to know kind of the most effective evidence-based preventive measures to protect against development, but also to support recovery, um, kind of as my way of turning around to help the next patient in line and bring in some purpose for the pain of everything that I went through and using it for good. So one of the things I was saying at the beginning, mm, before we actually recorded, it was like, I'm shaken up. Like, and I still am a little bit. And that's because the conversation we had um, was an opinion, a uh, patient in their forties. And what I found, the reason I'm, um, it's difficult for me is I'm learning that a lot of the second opinions I'm doing, um, I'm somehow uncovering something, especially when I'm explaining what metastatic means or stage four and curative or not curable. My first question almost always on a second opinion, or even a first time, because they get information from other doctors is what to your understanding, not in the sense of, do you understand, but just because, and I'll say, and I don't trust doctors, I don't trust anybody, right? In general, you should, you should get your own knowledge searching. 
And I'll ask, what have you been told or what is your understanding of where we're at in the, in the process? And it's unbelievable, including the previous visit, the number of times what I'm hearing is very discordant or not exactly aligning with what's happening. And so in this position, I was the one to say, this is very metastatic. It's in the abdomen because at the beginning, they saw the conversation. I just hope to get the therapy so I can go back to a normal life. Right. And so instantly I was like, this is going to be a very long, difficult conversation because they were under the impression. Unfortunately, it was a recurrence um, uh, uh, shortly after a, a very high risk, you know, stage three disease. Um, what do y'all feel as far as on the other side, were there moments when you were told things that were either unclear or seemed like they were either embellished or underplayed? And what did that do for you? Either in your trust in the process, the patient, uh, to doctor relationship. Were you just thinking you weren't understanding because you didn't have the knowledge? Did you ever feel uncertain about what was being told about to you? And what do you, why do you think that is? And how could it be, I guess, improved upon? I love that you asked your patient, are you understanding? Like, are you comprehending what I'm saying? Because that happens a lot. I had that experience a lot of time because I think it's not so much the doctor not being clear to me. It's so much. I have cancer and what is going in one ear is coming out the other. And I'm not completely understanding the words that the doctor is saying. And it is so important to go to appointments with someone because I can't tell you how many times, for example, I remember uh, I had my chemo, I had my surgery and my mom called me on the phone and she's like, your oncologist, he, I, pretty sure he thinks you're at radiation, that you started radiation. I'm like, did he? Yes, I was there. And so it's, I think there's so much going on. And especially if your treatment, my treatment, I was in treatment for a year and a half. And so there was like, as soon as we got through one hurdle, it went to the next, to the next. And a lot of times what my oncologist was saying to me, I may not be completely comprehending, but I do like that pause what are you understanding? Where do you see that we're at? So I think that is so, so important, whether you have a patient with curable intent or metastatic, because treatments change. I'm, I'm sure Bethany can, and, can interject on that. Things are constantly moving and changing. And so I do like that pause. And I think it's very much needed in the oncology setting. Yeah. So, so I've had two rounds of cancer. My, my first diagnosis was about seven and a half years ago. And um, they described it as a late stage two, early three. So I didn't quite know the exact stage. And we did start with chemotherapy. So, you know, we didn't know. I still like struggle with my two or three. And I just settled on two because by the time I ended up at surgery, it was at a two because chemo did such a good job of shrinking everything. Um, so five years later is when the cancer returned stage four. And I have to say there are a few things that I absolutely love and appreciate about my doctors. And um, between my diagnosis, I actually had a whole new medical team because I moved from Texas to Colorado. So this is a team of doctors that weren't with me for my first round of cancer. And so um, when I heard the word stage four, you know, I, I the first thing I loved is my doctor sat me down, looked me in the eyes and said, how are you? Like, how are you doing? You know, and there was that human connection. And I know you have that. I, I see that in all your videos and something I compliment you for because I'm like, I love seeing our doctors as real humans 
They'll hold your hand, look you in the eyes. And I luckily didn't have to say this off the bat, but she did say that this is, yes, it's stage four breast cancer. And um, no, it's not curable. There isn't a cure at the moment, but it's very treatable. And she kept repeating the word treatable, treatable. And for me personally, and I, and I know like other friends that are in my same situation hear different things and are given a timeline, a prognosis right away. And that honestly, like I, I tell them, like, I don't want to know. I, I don't want to know. I think that messes with your mind and doctor's words are really, really powerful. And so I just, I love that she just kept saying treatable, treatable, treatable. And that breast cancer in general, like metastatic breast cancer, the research, there's so much research and medicine's changing all the time. Just like what Kelly said, you know, one of the medications I'm on wasn't even FDA approved um, when I had my first diagnosis. And that's exciting to me. And so to be able to give hope and, you know, share some good stories of other patients who are doing well and living real lives, even with stage four cancer, I loved hearing those stories. It was like, it was like crack to me. Like all I wanted to hear was miracle stories, people being happy, even with cancer, you know, not having to wait until cancer has gone to be happy has always been a mission of mine. And so, um, and also I, you know, I want them to be real with me if they're, if they're concerned and, you know, like I, I also want their honesty, you know, as well. So it's like a nice balance with it, but I, I love, no one's given me a timeline. If I Google it, I'm, I'm very lucky to be here. I know that. And I'll occasionally run across like some statistics that I see in an article by accident. And I'm like, oh, cool. I'm over two years into this. That means great. <laughs> Only in the last six months to maybe nine months have I really been able to say what I can say now that I wasn't able to say a year ago, two or three years ago. And that's that it's almost potentially as erroneous to use the data, the landmarks of the five years or three years and stuff for the treatments in the past, because our treatment profile and landscape looks so different now. And so if you look at the number of drugs or treatments, and like using drugs, but like anthracusa therapies that have come out in the last three to five years. So if you just sit back and you think, and you Google, like how many things in breast cancer, how many things for then that three to five, like you realize immediately then the three to five year data that I'm reading cannot include these things that are obviously have replaced these things because you have to be three or four, five years and 10 years out to even be able to have that data. So like, it's very easy, I'm sure for families and especially family members that start getting in your year about like the Google it, but those numbers for the most part don't include a lot of the novel immune therapies, targeted therapies, et cetera. So what I'm able to say now, it's for the first time, I don't know that it's like even inaccurate. Like I think it might actually like introduce some inaccuracy and expectation because they don't include those treatments. And the second thing I can say is the way that stuff is coming out now, I'm like, I would, for me to give you a survival, even with like, like in a state four setting, even with like data that's more or less up to date, it requires progress in cancer therapies to halt. To say that nothing new will come out in six months, nine months, twelve months, and, and eighteen months. If you look what's come out, like it's dozens of, of standard care replacing drugs, then it's illogical for me to make a number because that again necessitates complete halt to progress. And 
progress word is, you know, sometimes that touchy, like I, I try to avoid the O word shortened progress because uh, I know it has a different meaning now. The word right, progress exactly. and progression and positive, right? Those are words that like now it's like, mm-hmm. I'll say, I'll be like, we don't want pro- to use the word progress or positive. We can we use a synonym. Um, but yeah, so those are important points. It's just that like, if you're listening to this with someone is those numbers and data points are just in a much more shotgun approach with generalized therapies and it's not the same precision molecular testing, Bethany and I had to talk about, you know, this feature that just came out last year about the HER2 expression of breast cancer. And so all that stuff is way more precise to a patient and the patient's tumor than a lot of the stuff that you're seeing or reading about. So I just hope that's driven. Well, just even, even like with triple negative, like I finished chemo five years ago. It blows my mind and makes me so, so happy to see like now, like, Keytruda and immunotherapy being like my oncologist tells me all the time, if you got diagnosed today, your treatment plan would have been totally different. And like that was only five years. What is going to happen in the next five years? And even like metastatic TMBC, like I I love that you said that, you know, these statistics are quite honestly wrong because there is new medicines coming out all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you can get really empowering information the more you learn, but also to your point, sometimes in that meeting, how you relay. I had to beg my oncologist to share my survival stat with me. He wasn't going to put it. I was like, put it in. Just tell me. What am I going to die? He wouldn't do it because he said no two patients are alike. There's no way of of telling you some information. You may survive and get through 12 rounds of the chemo regimen. I have many patients who can never take more than seven or eight. Like, I don't know how you're going to react or respond. I don't know that it's going to work. I'm hopeful that it will. You're young. You can hopefully manage this and we're going to do the best we can. And you're really optimistic. And I feel really, I was really lucky because my surgeon, when I met her, the way I met her, I was waiting. It was right after I was diagnosed. She walked in and smiled and took my hand and told me, let's talk about how we're going to save your life. And that was before we even knew how bad my cancer was. And my oncologist was the same age. He was so personable. He's a dad. He's my age. He took all the time in the world to answer all my questions. And, and I didn't leave the office until I really understood what he answered my questions, but also I understood what his plan of action was. And um, like, like you're saying, I think your delivery and then also, you know, he didn't share some information with me because he didn't want to insert any. He just wanted me to focus on what we needed to do, what the next step was. And he really believed, he, I feel like at that time, he believed more than I did that I was going to get through this. Um, and it yeah. was because of the information and the way he related it that helped me um, stay hopeful and optimistic, especially during the hard times. So that makes your delivery and your personality and not feeding patient um, as a patient, but as a person matters a lot. I don't like that the patient gets the report before the doctor does. Um, for my own, when I was going through treatment, I was actually very lucky. And my experience was a lot different than a lot of people. Uh, we didn't have my chart. You know, everyone, you know, they, I knew what was happening only when my oncologist told me. And I was like, you know, I was in the nest and he would just, you know, let me know when things are going on. And when things weren't so good, he would let me know. But I never knew before him. Uh, I would say within this this year, I now are my hospital now has my chart and I've been seeing everything. And I will tell you, uh, 
if I had my chart when I was going, when I was getting diagnosed, I would have fell off the deep end because like knowing that I'm cancer free and looking at these reports, I'm getting anxiety. And I'm like, why am I anxious? I'm totally fine. But I'm like looking like 33 year old female die, uh, with metastatic breast cancer. I'm like metastatic breast cancer because I had lymph nodes, metastatic lymph nodes. But like you as a doctor, you understand metastatic lymph nodes doesn't mean stage four cancer. But if I were to see that report and type in metastatic breast cancer, I would have been like, oh, my God, you know, it's it's all over my body when that simply wasn't true. So um, I think that no, I, I don't fit me personally. I think the doctors should get the information first, explain it to us, because quite frankly, we didn't go to medical school. We don't know what we're looking at. We don't want to ask the audience and, and ask Google and what do you got? What do you guys think this means? And then a lot of times you're going to get wrong information. I'm not, right? Like for me, my mom, I grew up with a mom who was the director of pharmacy services for 40 years for Kaiser Permanente. She knew I had cancer before they diagnosed me. As soon as I came home and said they want me to come back for a colonoscopy, there's a mask. And he ordered a CT scan and lab work. And my mom fell down and was like, oh, shit. She's my language. I shouldn't have said it on here. But she knew. And I was like, oh, that's the... Your mental background, sorry if that fits, and it helps. And I think for her, she wants to see, but she's always like waiting for documentation for anyone in her family and she reads it, but she kind of knows how to. But I think it's a personal choice for most people who don't have a medical background. No one, right? You'd rather hear it and have it explained to you. But then there's some people who probably want to know as soon as possible because they can make sense of it. Yeah. At least not wait. Because sometimes waiting, you quit the call. It's funny. You have to go through a whole weekend or something. I have like, yeah, I have both experiences right now happening with my care where I get two scans uh, to monitor the stage four breast cancer. One is a bone scan, which is done at the hospital. The other is a CT scan done at the cancer center. The cancer center will not release anything in advance before I meet with my oncologist in person. And so now that I know that that's happening, it's like, okay, I know the date and time I'm getting that news. However, uh, the bone scan is released pretty much the day of. I get it in my chart, but my doctor does sign off on it first. And I have to say, like, for my own personal, like, peace of mind, I I do like to know as soon as possible. But at the same time, uh, my preference would be for those reports to be written in English. Because, dear God, the medical language is hilarious. Like, I just... I am sitting there Googling terms. I have a best friend that's a chief medical examiner in Denver. So I send it over to her. She's like, I'm calling my scan nights. And I'm like, all right, team, what what does this thing say? And I'm looking at every word. Um, Is that healthy? Maybe not. But it's certainly like so far right now, what brings me most peace of mind is to know the sooner the better. And often I'm getting good news in that bone scan, which again, gives me more hope. Like the last round, it was very, it was written so clearly that there was no evidence of any bone um, metastasis in my body or any growth. It was so clearly said that. So immediately I'm like, yes. And I had my appointment two days later. So those next two days, I'm like, you know, I'm feeling extra excited to walk into that appointment. So I think if it could be the patient's choice, um, that would be really neat. Uh, but that waiting game is, that is a mind, a mind fuck and a half that I use a lot of tools for. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to, I could not. To I mean, keep I my peace. <laughs> You're not alone. I, mean, a lot of the, I, mean, <laughs> <we> all, <laughs> I cannot imagine. Crazy. And a lot of it is like, it's, 
some, a lot of it's just even the, the CBCC of me. It's like, you know, I get a call just every couple of days, like here's some of my ALT or ST, it could represent liver mats or, you know, things that are just so like, like not the way it is, but I just feel like some, sometimes I get invite anxiety. I don't know. The problem is you have to like trust. What is your trust in the doctor? Are they competent? Are they sharing everything with their volume? So it's, it's tricky. So the next question I want to ask is, and I learned so much from you all, honestly, um, just more than y'all know, and you know, more than everyone, there's just, that's the thing, the beauty of people that are, that do share these kind of you know, vulnerabilities or, or are just not afraid of the way somebody would perceive something. If you know, there's good to what you're doing, if there's purpose, right. And I do that on my mentorship when people are trying to get on well, what about, what is your institution thing? I'm like, dude, just do good, like mean good. If you're doing it in vain or like care about the white stuff, and, you know, then it gets really unhealthy. But if you know that somebody is receiving something that you're sharing, it's it's powerful. So the next question, because I've learned a lot on this, is I would love if y'all are comfortable and it's okay if you need a second. What is one thing that for whatever reason, when someone that meant well said to you during your diagnosis, what is that phrase or what is that thing that just like, you just want to put them in the base or just like, I know what you mean by this, but if I hear that one more time, uh, I'll toss it up for anyone to receive. But I've learned a lot of the phrases. I don't know if it's one of, it's, did one of you all do a thing where they have all the different phrases that sometimes like can hit different. I don't know if it was one of, one of you all, but I've learned a lot. So whoever wants to receive that. When we pick just one. No, what you, give me, I mean, give me <laughs> like a fire. I really want to be sensitive enough. Of, of what I think, what not to say. Um, yeah. One is I'm shocked at how many people tell me about their aunt's sister's cousin's uncle's dog that just died of cancer. It's it's like an immediate death story died of that I often, you know, that I often get immediately when I share my diagnosis. And so I, I personally like, I know this happens. I've been in this world for a while. That is heartbreaking. And I it's hard to hear right away. Um, also, any kind of language that is like, well, what did you do wrong to get cancer? Um, is any kind of shame-inducing language question conversation that makes it appear that we are the cause of our cancer or, you know, didn't live healthy enough or didn't eat organic enough. I am the epitome of health. I was wellness, worked in wellness, yoga teacher, yoga therapist, ate organic, took care of my mind, and I I got cancer now twice. And so that shaming aspect of it, I just have no space for anymore. Um, And then the fun question of did you try XYZ, you know, essential oil or I don't know, putting kale up your butt. I have, there's just all these different ways, right? And, and most of the people that have these really strong opinions on how to heal cancer, I notice don't have cancer and never mm-hmm. had. And those are the people that are preaching, preaching the hardest or strongest at me. It's or makes them even feel like abuse <laughs> or ignorant for not doing it. Like they, they'll go as far as to end up like, well, why wouldn't you? Like you're trusting general medicine. Like I can't imagine like the selfishness of not understanding the psychological insult that does to somebody and you don't even fucking know bro like you haven't even had it like you don't even like and and yet you're making someone feel you know like negligent about their own health yeah and 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 i also the other part like when someone says so i was someone who was not on board with western medicine pre-cancer life like i would have said do everything naturally and medicine is evil and big pharma and, and that was just how i viewed it and i 
have had a complete 180 on Western medicine where I'm just so grateful and appreciative of it. And I don't see cancer treatment as poison. I don't view it that way. And so often I would get questions like, you're going to put poison in your body. You're going to go just chop off your breasts. You're going to go, you know, and, and just this very, uh, to me, it, it just wasn't my experience. I'm like, no, I'm going to do healing. Like I'm going into a healing cleanse. That's what chemo is for me. It's here to heal my body, not poison me. That's the point of it. And I'm going to have my natural breasts replaced with something that's a lot less likely to get cancer. So I can try to be around here longer. And, and so those kind of questions, I think immediately kind of put me on the defense and I felt judged for, for the way that, you know, I was choosing to do treatment and that part, yeah, was difficult as well. I think based on the uh, timeline of what you shared when you were diagnosed too, I think even just as recently as five to 10 years ago, um, there was this like invisible divide. I don't know. I sensed this just in the last four or five years since I've started my own cancer journey. When I went into this and was trying to research, you know, my own recovery plan, there was this like divide, right? Like there was all these holistic health centers and best-selling authors and cancer gurus showing information, going as so far as to actually really dangerous misinformation, like suggesting that you don't have life-saving surgery or that the pharmaceutical companies are trying to kill you. And if you have chemo, you're going to make your cancer worse. And there, there really was horrible information out there. In fact, particularly in my form of cancer, one of the best-selling authors and books, you're not even allowed to mention his name or mention his books in most of the cancer forums that I know of now. But Five, 10 years ago, I think a lot of people, there was this divide of conventional treatment and complementary care, and you had to pick one or the other, right? And so that kind of created this negative where there were people saying, oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put that in my body or I would, and I was like, a foolish of you because it's going to save your life. Definitely have the surgery. Definitely have chemo. That's what you're needing to do. And then you had know, bridge together the best of both worlds and also practice complementary care because that's going to vastly improve your odds. You don't have to pick one or the other. But I think to your point, there was this like division among cancer. I, I sensed it when I was first diagnosed, looking for answers and advice that there seemed to be like team A, team B. And I was like, screw that, put them all together. I got to do everything I can to survive. You know, so there is no pick a side, but that definitely exists. And there was strong judgment or toward cancer patients sometimes toward your choice. Like you were, I felt pressured at some points, like, oh, you're going to have chemo. Yeah. I want to let the point go. But and, I had and, that and happen as well. That still, yeah, I would say that still exists. Like, if you, you know, if anyone listening to this, that's the purpose of my podcast, especially is like, if your doctor just dismisses that complimentary stuff, because we were taught that. Like, we were taught there's no data and you eat what you can, you pack the calories you can. But the truth is, we are not taught, like, in any capacity. It is something that you have to do outside of your patient, outside of your kids, outside of working out, having worked out on you. Because I have to edify myself in some focality and time. I can't sleep less than four hours and have about four or five just to learn. It's not, it's, the system lacks hugely in the integration of complementary plus anti-neoplastic traditional therapy. Um, so I'm really glad that you brought that point up. Kelly. And it's gotten so much better. Like I've always been a proponent of integrative. Like, why do you have to choose? Like, why not the best of this? What you said, the best of both worlds. Yeah. And between like, so my, my cancer center now has an integrative wing in this cancer center where there's massage and Reiki and acupuncture, nutritional counseling. And I'm like, I mean, that yeah. 
was my dream seven years ago. And it's it's happening more and it needs to happen more, more, more. <laughs> and I'm really happy that you talk so much about that um, on your social sites, actually, because when I was originally diagnosed, I trusted my doctors and my my medical experts. That's who I asked my surgeon. So what should I think about in, like in terms of diet and disease and cancer diet? And should I be changing the way I eat or what can I do to back up? Obviously, you're specializing in administering my chemo and you're specializing in my surgery. But what can I do to back up and support all the work you're putting forward to improve my odds? And the problem, and this is where I kind of identified at least a problem that still does exist today. It is getting better, like you said. But many of the integrative practices are often left for the patient to implement directly. And often, at least in my case, my doctors didn't know how to offer direction at that time. So that was frustrating because then I had to sift through a lot of misinformation, wellness trends, fads, books that said very terrible, terrible advice, and finally kind of figure out, okay, well, I'm only going to follow, you know, proven research and figure out what forms of integrative healthcare are actually worth following. But again, I know so many patients who just give up because they don't know where to begin. And I think that's a problem. And I hope that moving forward, that that becomes more a part of the treatment process and it does get incorporated even more and that programs exist. That's what I was looking for. I know in the books I read and the research I did following my diagnosis, it's why I wrote my book, why I created my app. It's why I advocate and share what I do now because I felt that that was, that's really what we're missing still a little bit to this day. Big time, big time. Uh, And and if insurance could cover cover some of those recommended things would be would be amazing. I'd yeah, I need to happen for sure. I would say as a triple negative, multiple times I get sick. I was told this. And I know it's not meant to be hurtful, but it is hurtful. We are known as the bad breast cancer. And I have been to, well, I go to Miami Breast Cancer Conference every single year. And I remember meeting this amazing uh, onco- um, uh, heart doctor, and I introduced myself as a triple negative survivor. And he's like, triple negative? That's the bad one. And I'm like, no. You know, five years later, it still hits the same way as it did the day I was diagnosed. I have had a nurse say that those exact words to me, and it's just like, yeah. <laughs> here, I, here I am defying the odds but um yeah that's uh that I mean in 10 years it'll probably still sting but yeah um we may have the bad cancer but um let's call a spade a spade in this case <laughs> yeah no, 100%. there is no good cancer right like I had like one of the deadliest forms of advanced stage and I even had the worst bedside manner and I laughed about it because I'm like numb to it now but at my last scan I was laughing because it was a young radiologist and I go in and do you mind if I ask what kind of cancer we're looking for you oh it's sure it's cold and I'm like <laughs> thanks he's like man I know someone and it came back and then he died and I'm like that's probably not what you should be I'm just shocked I was sent for a lymphatic uh, massage uh, after my surgery and the uh, PT person who uh, does all the lymphatic drainage, she was like, oh, my mother-in-law had triple negative, but she died. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all the time. I hope I think people happen to connect with you in the worst way. And it doesn't matter yeah. what form it's you have. 
That is like, I actually make, a, I've made posts about it. Like what not to say it. It's like the one thing that happens to everyone. And Nikki, you know, it's inevitable. Last about it. They are trying to make it. It's technically, I think they're trying to make a connection, but yeah, it's, 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 it's always, it always falls off. Well, she, right I up. always try to remind yeah. myself like yeah. the intention. Yeah. Yeah. The good intention behind it could yeah. be kind and sweet and connecting and also God, people get so uncomfortable. I get uncomfortable sometimes and not know what to say. And so like something just flies out of their mouths. And so it's like I try to keep reminding myself that. But yeah, after this amount of years in it, I'm like, all right, guys, like, come on. <laughs> what is one piece of advice, and so if it's two, that you would give someone when they come to you and say it's like either, whether it's how did you get through it? What is the number one thing that changed your outlook? Um, something that is a word of encouragement for somebody that is met with this diagnosis. I have a saying, it's their story isn't your story. So you can go on the internet if you're triple negative. I, I talk to a lot of triple negatives. I connect to a lot of CNBCs. And yeah, you can find stories of someone having the same exact, exact diagnosis as you, same exact uh, staging, and they're going to have their quite possibly have a totally different reaction and end result than you And I think when you're going through cancer, it's so easy to read about a story about someone's chemo not working or their cancer coming back in year three and be like, look, oh my God, I'm in year three. That's me. That's going to happen to me. It's like, no, cancer is so complex that no two cancers are the same. Even if we do the same exact treatment and the next person. I have so much advice for someone newly diagnosed. And I think the, the first thing is um, I know that this is shocking news. I know that is not part of your life plan. And um, I would encourage, you know, what we think of cancer is, is immediately your mind goes to it's a death sentence. And as someone who has been living in cancer land for over seven years, now lives with incurable cancer stage four, um, I can honestly say it's quite the opposite. In my experience, it's been a life sentence. And so for me, where I think the most empowerment I've, I've found is taking a look at my mindset and my thoughts and my emotions and what I'm thinking and believing about cancer. And when we hear those words, our mind leaves the present moment. It goes into the past where we've seen movies with terrible, awful cancer stories. It goes into what we've seen with friends or family members and other people's bodies, like what, what Kelly was talking about. That, that's our reference point for what cancer is. And then our minds take that into the future. Now that's my future. And I see myself, my body withering away and decaying. I see myself in constant pain from treatment, I see saying goodbye to my loved ones. I can't tell you how many times my mind has gone there. But what's so cool is that just because our minds go there, that doesn't mean it's actually reality. So the ability to call yourself back, you know, to the present moment of what's real right now. Whoever's listening to this, they're hearing our voices. You might be seeing our faces. You might be sitting, like, look around the room. Like, that's actually what's really happening in life right now. And so I find that if I keep, keep my mind and my thoughts in check, and there's a lot of different tools I use um, to do that, that it's so much easier to navigate. And I'm right now, you know, I'm living what I thought would be my biggest nightmare. You know, when I first went through my first round of cancer, it's like, okay, great. 
I'm in remission, you know, I'm like cancer's behind me, it's over. And then boom, life was at the height of awesomeness and then stage four happened. And so um, that my genuine experience is that it's my life is not a nightmare. I love my life. Like I love my life. And so I have actually re like renamed my diagnosis um, as live the fuck out of life. That's what I've been diagnosed with. That's my mission. And that's how I want to support others as well is being able to be happy now, not waiting till treatment's over or waiting for cancer to be over, waiting for whatever thing to work out. It's like, it's possible now. Um, And that to mean, I always get like, sometimes I feel like the way that I share my cancer journey gets misinterpreted that you have to be positive all the time because people are like, oh, you're so positive. And like, it's true. I generally am a positive person, but that doesn't mean I'm positive and happy all the time. I lose my shit. Like I get lost in fear. I go downhill. I get scared. Um, and feeling those emotions and grieving this life that I thought I'd have, you know, that that it's different. My life has changed in a lot of ways. And, and there's so many unknowns and, and there's grief with that. So I let myself feel all those feels. So that's another part of advice too. Like if you're not feeling happy and hopeful, that's okay. <laughs> let yourself feel that fear, anxiety, you know, move your body, write it out, scream into a pillow, find the therapist. Um, that part like is really important too, to honor those emotions. And then you can kind of climb out of that. It's just that I don't want to live in that space. But I, I welcome, you know, those emotions. It's so natural and normal part of the journey as well. That was so beautiful. Thank you for, you know, just sharing that and speaking on it. And that's why, you know, when I see your content, it's just a reminder. Like it is when I see patients every day, like the humility, you know, it's just, it's humbling. It's, I see the finiteness. Like we have people that are loved ones of cancer patients that the whole family's worried, you know, and they're worried about the patient, the spouse, but then that a family member would unfortunately like pass away. Like whether it was an NBC motor vehicle accident or, or, on the side or whatever, unfortunately, we live in a very, really, and it's pretty high rates, but it, it reminds everyone in almost a weird way, like ground, to, you know, in a weird way that like you enjoy a remission, you enjoy control, you enjoy survivorship or thrivership. Um, and I try as an oncologist, you know, I tell my patients, uh, like my job, and that's why I don't know how long I could do full-time forever. Cause I do my wife and I both bear this. I mean, we thrive multiple times a week, but at some point, um, but it's like, my job is to stress. Like, I will tell you when it's time, like the stress, I'm not going to just like creep up on you, but like, I'm like, if you, if this is like, let it creep up, uh, creep up on you, sorry. But if you permit me, if we have a deal, you live as fervently as you can while we're in the good woods. And like, and I'm like, we got a second line that works more often than it doesn't. I'm like, I will share all this with you. So I try, so I try to reorient, like. We're only losing what we have. Like if, if you like you bear that responsibility on me, you know, like, and, and it's very important to have that kind of trust, I think with, with your team. And if you don't, then, you know, second opinions, you're not hurting a doctor's feeling. Like I tell my patients pretty often, if it's compromised, sometimes a family member would be in their ear and like, you look so young, how long you didn't go to, you know, Stanford. And sometimes it either gets in your head or it's starting to get so negative from family members. I'm like, please go and get a second opinion. I'm like, I, you deserve to be vindicated of that, liberated of that, like being in the ER that you didn't do due diligence. Yeah, 99% time it matches. The point is it's invaluable. And if somebody is a better fit, I would then, then have the better fit. So anyone listening, not like actually probably what Bethany was saying, like feelings for other, like, you know, that brother just related to I'm like, 
if you are uncomfortable, there's no such thing as politeness when it comes to like your life and like your, you know, living maximally in trust. So just do it. And then, you know, if this catches somebody, I hope they take that action or give your doctor a chance. If you don't know what those options is, can you just be real with me? Like you will, it's amazing what you see melt away in like a very robotic, you know, well, there's so many stresses we've talked about on, on the physician side, but you will see the humanism if you just permit it to break, just be like, bro, like, do you mind just letting me know, like, am I freaking out whenever? And you will, I, I would have hoped that nine out of 10 times you see something different from that. And then the relationship can really change in a significant way. Uh, that was actually great. I liked what you just said. And to kind of build upon what the both of you just shared, um, advice for someone. And I, I almost get phone calls and emails every day um, because of my book and, and on social media. And the first thing I always start with advice to offer someone who's just been diagnosed is that um, kind of like what you said, it's, it's an entire chapter in my book that I called mindset is your greatest form of medicine there is. And how you react and how you respond and your belief in your body's ability and belief in yourself to just go through whatever this is going to be like. And it's going to have a direct result in how your body reacts and responds to everything that you do moving forward, whether you choose to eat well, whether you choose to continue to exercise, how your body responds to the treatment. Everything is connected. And so mindset is the greatest form of medicine there is in addition to everything else you're doing. And you have to empower yourself with a healthy mindset. And to your point, uh, Bethany, I think you had said it's kind of like when you receive a cancer diagnosis and I, it's another chapter in my book, I talk about how you truly like go in through the stages of grief, right? Like initial shock, disbelief, anger, sadness. Um, I definitely needed time to grieve uh, the possibility of my own death far before I felt like I had my fair share to live the better half of my life, what that would be like for my family. I had to sit in and feel and think about all of it for me to finally pull myself up, process it. And again, I think it's a dangerous place to be, but a necessary one, because when you go through that emotional experience, in order for you to process it fully, you really do have to feel it and you have to grieve and then recognize when the time has come to pick yourself up. And that's why I, I often say cancer patients are called warriors and fighters and, and brave because you go through an experience most people can't relate to. But when you come out the other side of that, that's where the mindset matters. And that's where the will to live and all the things you have to live for are going to kick in. And the advice I tell everyone, a turning point for me was when I was done grieving and I was done feeling sad and sorry for myself. Um, I focused entirely every day on the many reasons I had to live. And for me, that's my family. It's my four kids. It's my husband. It's the life I wanted to make the most of each and every day I had left, no matter the outcome. And I wanted to set an example for those watching, those in my family, my friends, um, to, to, to look back on. And, and no matter the outcome, I just wanted to set a positive example that you can live with cancer. You can still enjoy life with cancer. You can thrive with cancer. And, and you know, I'm grateful that I was able to survive it. And that's why, you know, I'm so committed to helping others take power following a diagnosis, because I think it can be a life transformative experience for many in a good way. Um, I know it was for my family and myself and everything we learned and everything we've changed since then about lifestyle and behavioral habits that everyone has benefited from. Um, you know, I've never wish it a cancer diagnosis on anyone and I hope to never have to go back and re-experience it. But ultimately, in hindsight, I think it made every member of my family, my children included, uh, stronger and we are closer and we are living a better life today because of it. That's, that's amazing. I, as, you, as I was hearing you say that, kind of makes me think in the same way that I sometimes still 
you'll see some of the other guys that get, they get here for Raheem with insult, but it's simple and, and maybe, it'll, maybe they didn't need to be referred. And I'm like, I want to give them something of value. So I'll tell them like, when it comes to something like their diabetes or if they're like, you know, really overweight, but I know that they, they just kind of need a, a jog. Like I'll be like, look, your next 15 years are going to look very different. If like, if you want to be around with the kids, you have mild fatty liver disease and da da. So my point in saying that is the life can look very different. It will be a different path, like for the next five, 10, 20, whatever years, if you make this change now, right? Otherwise, it wasn't your best. To what you were saying, whether it's curable or not, you know, all the semantics, like in, in reality, to be honest, but, but whether you're, you know, a stage four setting where you're having good control or whether there's the intent of cure, the same concept applies to like that decision. And it needs to be a volitional, I assume, like conscientious decision to change, like, like where it is. I don't know if it's a family meeting thing or whatever to say, I'm going to like, like do the most, like uh, Bethany always says on her stuff. It's like, that makes the time you have left, whatever it is, stage four, not stage four, whatever. It makes every day, every week, every month look different. And that's what I've learned from you all. And it does take a volitional, like stop, pause. Do I like the quality of like my thinking and my like angst and my anxiety? And if I don't, what can I do about it? And if y'all have time, do y'all have time for a piggyback question to that? I've got one thing to add to that question. No, please, nothing. Go ahead. Yeah. Like, I just like one more thing, because it's just in line with what everyone's saying. Um, There is, you know, people want to know how, right? Like, oh, this sounds really great, but but how? And and there's a question I ask myself um, is, and this is with cancer, of course, but honestly, any life challenge is what is it teaching me? You know, and and how might this be happening for me instead of to me? And it kind of took me out of this this victimhood mindset and into being a student, learning, growing. And it's like, I mean, we're all saying really the same thing that there's there's so much beauty. You know, we we know life is precious now, thanks to this experience and the time with our loved ones. Oh my God, like they're the littlest things like watching my nephew like have oatmeal fall out of his mouth eating breakfast. I'm just like, I'm so glad I get to be here to see this and have that appreciation for life. And then look at how you're living. So for some people, what they're learning is a whole new lifestyle or a way of eating or new therapies that they didn't know about before. Um, I love adventure and I'm very much like, yeah, I'm going to say yes more often when my body's up for it, going on those ski slopes and going for that hike or that vacation to Costa Rica that I just did last year. Like I'm a yes to life because, because like you said earlier, we, nobody knows when they're going to go. I could die in a car accident tomorrow. Like we have no idea, but to have that, I don't know, that um, awareness at a younger age is like, to me, it's such a blessing. Um, and I gladly delete cancer as well. Like if someone gave me the button that's like, delete cancer forever, I'd be like, boom, press that button for you and you and you and me. But I would keep all these realizations and these lessons because it is a much richer life um, rooted in gratitude now where if I compare to my pre-cancer life. Yeah, well, that's that's really powerful. I think, um, I mean, I think it goes, one of the comments when I asked earlier, what are things that are hurtful or whatever I've seen on social media, some people like, you know, it irks me and this is not my phrase, this is just what they say when somebody says like, well, God wouldn't give you anything you can't handle or God has a plan. And, and I, you know, I definitely immediately, I mean, I don't say that like objectively, but I can see how that's like, that 
hurtful, but I can see how somebody meant well with it. But I think the flip side is to what you're saying. It's like, it's not necessarily like, oh, make a terrible thing positive, but there, but, but it does highlight the fact that there is, there is something productive that can happen with anything like productive, meaning can't, it's up to you if, if like whenever that challenge is, and I don't mean pretend to know the particular circumstance, but, but you can find productivity in anything that's either seemingly challenging or makes you feel unwell or ill. And I would say that my kids and the mentorship, I'm like, it's not one of those things like, oh, I have no regrets. Like there are things that I've like screwed up or just like wish I did differently if not. But like at the end of the day, I'm like everything, like in some way, like if you, if you choose to make like pinch out some kind of value or positivity or productiveness that makes you a better person tomorrow, you have made a bad thing. And again, I'm not, I can't speak on it as far as a, a diagnosis and help like this, this magnitude. I hope I have that strength, but I don't know. But anything even short of that, like, it's like, I, this, this, this is what it is. It happens and I make it productive. And, it, and that I think that's what people mean when they say like, well, there's a point of this, that, and the other. But the question I had, and it's just so powerful, by the way, you say that and, and, and all of you, it's incredible. The thing that I want to piggyback about the volitional decision to say, we're going to do this differently. This is debilitating or this is malignant. This is parasitic, the way we're thinking, the way we're behaving. Cause I see a lot of that. I try to navigate the preoccupation with things so much that I'm like, go on living. I had to tell a couple, I think my first year, I'm like, y'all are so fixated respectfully. I'm like, you've been married for 52 years. You love each other. Like they, they were, they're so, you know, obsessed. It's, it's very, but their life became about the numbers of the thoughts and this and that. And they, they thanked me or she thanked me after the best way. And then something you know, I wish I told them sooner, right? The regrets thing, but I learned, right? So that's why I made productive. But I was, she was like, I wish I just heard sooner because and I was relatively new into practice, I didn't feel comfortable, but she's like, I have to enjoy it here again. Like, like it's like, because we got over focused in, in, in part on like, how much time do we hear it? And you're just fixated on the time thing. The point thing that is, I also notice, and it's not something I'm, I did or I'm good at, but the world, celestial will, God, whatever, whatever you believe in, willed me with an awareness of what a person may be feeling without saying it. And then me contrasting that to what their oldest son or the daughter that comes from out of town or what their spouse is saying. So my question is a very long minute question is I know that some of these family members mean well, but then I can see somebody that really should be living out of life. Like you say, Bethany, that, that they're so caring and love their loved one so much, their child, their spouse, their, whoever that person is, I see them almost tailoring what they're doing, what they're saying to make happy the person in their life that wants the best for them that may be overly aggressive wanting the treatments or wanting whatever my question is how do you what is the advice you give to other people with a cancer diagnosis that may feel like parts of them they'll never say this and i don't know if they feel it but they're appeasing those around them because they know they have a finite time and i'm especially talking about a stage four or during the active uh, active time when you don't know you know if you have cured intent have you experienced that or at least I know you know about it, is almost feeling like they lose themselves in the time they have to appease and are afraid to stand up for someone. And I, I speak up and I'd say, I want to know, like, respectfully, I know you know, but I think she feels different, but I know a lot of oncologists don't. What is the advice if a patient is feeling that they're doing something for a loved one or has a different opinion that you give them about not maybe letting feeling like they'll get let them down? I'll hop in and say, because I was in stage four, but even at stage three, there are points along I had cancer during COVID, so it really stunk. So it was very lonely. Um, there wasn't, I wasn't allowed to have moral support, right? 
had to go through everything and just I relied on the awesome nurses in the infusion center. But there were times, um, probably the second half of treatment where I honestly, I it was just I didn't want to go in. I I started having setbacks. I had some really awful um, emergency room visits, and I had reached a point where I was kind of depressed. And I remember not wanting to say it in front of my husband or my children or my mom, but saying it to my mom, like when she would come to pick me up to drive me to the hospital, like, I, I don't think I can do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. I feel awful. This isn't living. I don't want to go through another round of treatment. Each round of chemo took like everything in my power because I had such a poor experience. Again, I, I, I still exercise. I was fine, but it was just so hard. It was so hard. My form of chemo was just difficult. And I can understand um, why for some, if you're at a later season in life, if you've lived your life, if I understand why some patients choose to not want to continue going through treatment. And I have complete and utmost respect for that because it is so hard to do. And again, that always comes back to what are your reasons to live? What are the many reasons you have to live? And for some, they've lived a really good life. I've talked to patients and, and family members who say, you know, I don't, I've I've had cancer. This is my second or third time. And at my age, I'm just going to let my life go the way it goes. And I'm sorry, I'm going to let my family members down. And I know my son or my daughter or my grandkids and everyone wants me to go through with this. But as someone who's as the patient, and again, I've had to, I had to muster through it because I had, I had them staring at me and it was a kid that gave me the energy. But I can see why a patient would feel that way because I felt way even in my age and, and being young and having all the support I had and I think unless you're the patient it is only your journey it's helpful to have people wanting to encourage and support you but at the same time they need to respect your wishes and I definitely think for some that's a very personal choice and a very personal decision that only the patient can ultimately make do you wish you do you think you wish you didn't mention how depressed you were or was it good that you didn't like what's there um, something that could have been I think I scared my husband with a few times. So I started telling my mom because he broke, like the start life, we built it together. Um, so I was careful what I shared with him after that and really more open with my mom and my stepfather. My stepfather was going to the end of his life. He had um, a neurological disease. And so we kind of went through this together and we had kind of morbid conversations because I was going through cancer and we'd sit in the chair and we'd talk about it. And I'd tell him like, if you were in my shoes and we would tell you said, I wouldn't do it, that I'm 78. But <laughs> You know, we kind of had these like life conversations and I said, I respect that and I get that and I wouldn't tell you you'd have to, but my mom would have, she would have made him go through it and I would have probably stood up for him and said, no, unless you're in his shoes and going through it, that's a very personal choice and you don't get it. And again, I, I like I said, those family members mean well. And in my case, like, I don't know how I would have gotten through the nine months of treatment if I didn't have a rock solid mom and a husband who like was my greatest cheerleader and talked to me like Rocky Balboa before I went in every time, like you got this, they called me and like told me and my kids, I'd come home and it was like a celebration. Like I had all that help, but not everyone does. And then that's what I've learned is like, it's just, it's just again, so heroic and humbling. Like I know some people are like, well, don't bother here or whatever. I mean, to me it is, it is what it is. Cause it's like, people still bear their life is threatened and they're still like, well, I know it's so hurt my husband. I get that all the time for my patients. And like, and there's, so there's this, this extra bear of weight and responsibility on top of fighting for your life. And on top of like your own emotions, I just see them also thinking about the other people's emotions and biting their tongue just for them. And that, you know, that 
when people say, why do you, are, are you have to be a sociopath and do on phone and stuff? I'm like, dude, that hurts my feelings. But if I can talk about phrases, because like, I, like, I feel that's the least I could do because look at the, like what you did and what y'all, you know, you shared, I didn't share it, tell it. Cause I don't, you hesitated to say if I, you still like in that position or like, I don't know if I should have, it was enough to do that to him. I mean, it's crazy. It's just, I, I can't wrap my head around it. Do you think as cancer survivors or active patients, what I will say is I actually, part of that grieving process was coming to complete comfort with the idea and the thought of my own death. And most people don't feel comfortable with death. It's like the most scariest thing, right? That's no one wants to die. But I think cancer patients are really comfortable with it because at some point in the process, you get used to that, knowing it's a very real possibility, the uncertainty with your future. You can't live in fear of death for however many years you're going through cancer. So you learn to be very comfortable with the idea and the thought of your death and seeing it as, hey, when that time comes, that time comes. And I think for other people, it's still uncomfortable because they haven't had to go through what you've gone through. So I think that makes patient the one that really ultimately has, you know, that they understand it and they're worried about the discomfort and what it will mean to everyone who's left behind and grieving them. But you get comfortable with, hey, we're all at some point, right, one way or another. And, you know, I think that's that's part of it. Other people aren't comfortable with that that's yet. Probably. They haven't gone there yet. It spells. I never heard it quite like that, but that makes, that makes sense. Thank you for sharing that. What an emotional question. Like if you see me tearing up over here, rubbing my eyes, cause it's like hearing you talk, Aaron, like, and excuse me if I get emotional on here, but it like takes me back to when I was in treatment, getting chemotherapy. And it was really hard, right? I, I, I don't have kids. Well, big family. I have. I had my husband and my mom, and I had my oncologist, and I love that man so much. And if you follow me on Instagram, you know I've got this amazing doctor that has rooted for me from the beginning. And I don't think I'd be here without him. And I remember going into his office and being like, "I do this. It's so hard. I'm so, I'm so nauseous." Like, I'm on, like, my second Red Devil. Like, how am I supposed to do this? And he said, Kelly, absolutely not. I'm going to hold your hand through this all, and we're going to get through this together. And gosh, that get, that gets me. And, you know, so grateful for having such a wonderful husband. And I think we don't give enough props to our caregivers. I have been married uh, to my husband for 11 years. And uh, we've been together since I was 20 years old. We met in preschool, so but that's a that's a that's a podcast for another episode. Um, I remember going through this, and my mom goes, "Your husband is so stressed," and I felt like, "Gosh, I've known my husband almost my whole life, and I couldn't even figure out or or realize that he was taking so much, but he wasn't." releasing any of them my mother was was fantastic uh my father uh ghosted me and uh so did my sister so my uh cancer experience was a little complicated so uh my uh my my connection with my oncologist he's very fatherly to me so like he's he was he showed up when when my own father didn't show up so um yeah to Aaron's point like yeah, it 
you don't even realize this. And, and Sanjay, I'm sure that you are that oncologist to so many other people and be like, no, absolutely not. Like, we're going to do this together. To Erin's point about the cancer patients that, you know, they do accept that death at some point of their diagnosis. I couldn't have said that better myself. I remember I was always a very positive person. Uh, I was a cheerleader on on the squad, gymnastics, everything. Uh, I come from finance. Uh, my job was to really like uh, motivate my employees to sell more products. And getting a triple negative diagnosis and having my first oncologist look me in the face and said, people die from what you have, was really, really hard. Going on the internet and seeing not lying. People do die from what I have. And I can't find a single person with stage three TMBC that made it. And I would lay in bed and I would cry and I'd put the covers over my head. And I said, what if I have six months like the rest of these girls that I'm finding on the internet? And then I had my aha moment. And I said, well, what if I do only have six months to live? I don't want to spend my life in bed crying. Like I want to be that positive girl. I've been my whole life. I want to be that uplifting girl the whole life. Like Kelly was happy until her last breath. That's what I wanted people to remember me as. I didn't want people to remember me as upset, depressed Kelly. And so it was that moment that I just said, you know what? I can't control what happens inside my body, but I can control the way I react to it. Thank you for sharing that, Philly. We don't know words. Thank you. Bethany, does that a lot of that stuff resonate with you? Oh my God. Absolutely. And it's like, so there's obviously there's the fear of death. And then exactly what you shared is the example of using that fear as inspiration to truly live. And that's like, that's a totally different way to look at it. Um, and I had like, trying to like go back to your question. I had like two very different experiences in, in my first round of cancer and second. Um, I was married in my first round, um, and like I like my advice for for the patient in this is that you know treatment is a personal decision, and you are the only one living in your body. You know, you're the only one, and so whatever treatment you choose, that's the right path for you. And don't let anyone convince you otherwise. I had a really really big challenge in my marriage where um, my partner, my husband, really believed in natural cures. Uh, you know, he read all this, this stuff online and believed everything and, and wanted to fly me off to Mexico, you know, and told me chemo was poison and that it would kill me and that I would go into an appointment with it with my oncologist. And then afterward, I would deal with, with his voice in my head saying, don't believe anything they said, don't worry, it's not really like that or he would try to disprove my doctors. And it was like, I, at that point was like, I've lived a natural life and I managed to grow a lot of cancer. So I'm going to actually open my mind to, to Western medicine. I'm going to invite it in. I'm going to see it, you know, as this healing cleanse, as this part of my healing team. And I'm going to view it with gratitude. And it was hard for me to do that with, with his, his advice and opinions constantly coming. And, and he would also not get support. I, I could have, I lined up, you know, um, mental health professionals for him. 
I offered up support groups. I offered up everything. And it wasn't until about a year and a half into that first round of cancer is when he finally started getting support. And, and ultimately what the reason for that, you know, I, I got to recognize as well as that she just, he just loved me and wanted me to live, you know, or it's like going back to that same sweet, sweet, loving intention. These people are family members that are worried about us, that are giving advice, that are, you know, wanting you, maybe pushing you to do, it comes from love. Like it really does deep down, but ultimately um, it's, it's our body, our choice in that process. And so um, when I did go into remission, um, that was part of, you know, I didn't know if cancer could come back or not. Oh, I know it could, but I didn't know if it would. And it was just like what Kelly said, like, well, how would I live my life if, if it did? Let's say I did have six months to live and I heard that news. And I absolutely, I made huge life changes because of that question. And I left my marriage. Um, I moved my life from Texas to Colorado. I wanted to be around nature, around community. My brother had just moved out here. They're about to have a baby. You know, I'm not able to have children because of cancer. So to be around in the presence of, of my now, I got to actually be at the birth of their second child of it just, I started giving myself all the things that I wanted. And then that's also when I published the book too, because that would be the other thing. It's like, okay, if I heard that news, what else? Well, I get that freaking book out there so I can help others find this mindset in whatever shit show they're dealing with in life. So, you know, I did all that. And then yes, cancer <laughs> came backstage for, oh, sorry. I also started dating again, <laughs> which was like a whole nother podcast of dating and having had cancer and new body parts and I had all these fears and it turned out to be like an amazing experience of self-discovery. And I, and I fell in love with, with a new, a new guy and he's my partner. Now he's been, we've been together for, gosh, we met one month before COVID. Um, but I had a really nice, like, I knew I was going to be working in the cancer world. Um, I was always upfront about my diagnosis and how important it is to me. And I knew that my primary thing with a partner, um, if I were to jump into a partnership again, is that person needs to be able to have fun with me in tough times. Like we need to be able to make the best of it together. And so like as life would have it, COVID hit one month after meeting and we just got to deal with a crazy life curveball together right away and unknowns and all these different things. And we just had so much freaking fun, like so much fun during COVID. It was our, our honeymoon phase. And then it was a little bit after a year of um, being together is, is when I had terrible low back pain that I was uh, had to advocate eight months to get a scan for that low back pain. Um, and finally, I got one. And, and that is what confirmed the stage four diagnosis. And then we learned it was also in my liver and my lymph nodes. And so, you know, he knew we had these open conversations. That's my other advice, like open conversations about the possibilities that of, of what could happen, open communication. And um, one of my most beautiful moments, like when I heard that news, we just moved into a new home together, like two weeks into a new home. And I'm like, you are free to go. Like, I know how hard this is on a caregiver. Like, no one's going to judge you. You did not sign up for this. This is not, the, you know, like this is going to be hard and I don't know where it's going to go. At that point, it was very hard for me to walk. I didn't know if I'd be in a wheelchair this month. Like I knew nothing. And um, and I had this moment where like I'm sitting on the couch and I'm telling him like, go, like go, <laughs> live your life. And he like looked me in the eyes and he's, and, and he's like, I am so f***ing in this with you. 
I am so fun. And like, those were like, talk about medicine. Like I just, and he has been in every way. And he lets me cry and he lets me lose it. And he talks me, you know, down when I'm going crazy. And he doesn't judge me in any way for how I handle treatment or what treatment I choose or judge my doctors or, and it is like a whole new world this round. And I'm also very fortunate, you know, my, my close knit family, like my mom used to be a nurse. She knows that medical language. She was a rock the whole time. And so I, God, if I could give everyone that close knit support system, like it's just so nourishing, so nourishing to have. But I'm also honest that like, I don't have little babies that I'm raising right now. And my heart, like just when I look at my nieces and nephews and think about not being able to see them grow up, like I think about, you know, moms and dads in this journey. And I'm just like, amazing, like amazing (laughs) to be going through this and raising, you know, these children at the same time. And so, um, yeah. All of y'all talked about what I think you know, somebody's listening to this stuff, they're going through something and they're like, I wish I had that. I wish I had someone that let me cry that, you know, understood if I was depressed, if you want to go in or let me voice my, my side effects. The best that I know, and you know, just being on the, not in it, but so close to it, but I always say it and I'm in it, but is that I encourage people to speak up to their loved ones, because the one thing that I've heard all of you is it comes from a place of love, right? Even if it seems impositional, even if it feels like, like I I couldn't consider you not doing this, even if it feels like you would let it down to not just tolerate the therapy and not ask for a dose for that, whatever the case may be, I have to believe in my, you know, germinal experience, please like just have the conversation because you can't, your provider, that caregiver that you're, you're holding back because you don't want to disappoint them. So clearly you love them, clearly they love you, but you know that. They just won't know unless you tell them because they're not the recipient of that love in that, and in that way of that communication. So please give them the grace. You love that person, give them the grace and share them. And you feel, Hey, you know, it kind of hurts me. Like if like, or like, I don't feel comfortable that I can cry. I don't feel like you can say I want to give up because I know if I'm mad, you get like, it would really be good if you could like maybe receive it. I saying like, I can understand like. Especially y'all, you know, if someone's listening to this and you're already thinking, you know, you're thinking about mortality, I think about every day, you know, my own, my children, all stuff, like being so close, you have to have those conversations. At the end of the day, what do you have to lose? And I have to believe, and maybe it's naive, but nine out of 10 times that person will respond in a way that will surprise you because that behavior or that like influence or whatever that may, it could be tailored. If you accept or believe that's coming from a good place of love, what, what better assurance or insurance of receiving that love, then, then open. And that's what you said, open conversations. I think at some point it was the term you used. So we nailed it. And open conversations, like what Aaron said about death. Like, I don't know, I can go real dark, real dark humor with death. I think it, humor is definitely like just a great coping mechanism for a lot of this stuff. But the ability, I recently went to a celebration of life for a friend that passed away, um, from cancer. And I was, I have never seen, um, like a, an experience like this before that I was so, ins- like, so inspired. I'm like, this is how I want to be honored. Cause they had a whole weekend it was almost like a wedding. Like they had a meetup on Friday and everyone got together. And then, um, the celebration of life was quite literally folk still focused on his life. And like, 
not how, not his death, not how he died, but his actual life. And then they had, they rented out a brewery and had um, his favorite like foods. You could order, you know, the Topher pizza special and, and he had his favorite drinks or his favorite music and bands were playing and people got together and they were happy. They were dancing and there were tears as well. And I just like, I loved it so much that I reached out to my family right away and I'm, I was like in tears, like guys, like I obviously hope this doesn't happen anytime soon, but I like, I want to have these conversations with you about yeah. death if it were to happen and what would I would want. And, um, I have not, it's crazy to me. I haven't done this yet, but it's doing it this year. I haven't written a will. Um, but just to have those like uncomfortable <laughs> really hard conversations just to get it out in the open because no matter what they probably end up being a lot smoother than what you expected or were fearing yeah and i just like everyone everybody is gonna the body is gonna die everyone no one gets out of this in the same body like period ever and i just it boggles my mind that it's such a taboo thing to talk about because no matter what it's gonna happen i hope it happens in a very very long time you know my body but at the same time any kind of work you do, inner work to make peace with death, to learn from it, to explore it, um, is serving you for whenever, you know, that happens. Yeah. And like, yeah, if you live forever, you, you wouldn't it. cherish every day as much as we do, right? And the time with those we love, the love we give, the love we receive, that's definitely a big part and purpose here. So, yeah. yeah. My wife was telling me about, if I mentioned, she's an oncologist and she does mostly breast and ovarian and she said that she read this thing about a neurocognitive shield that we're apparently evolutionarily primed with because if we if it was easy for us to be coherent uh, uh, with the concept or realization of our own mortality that we would have like existential crises like debilitating ones just like like throughout our lives and that's where I think it sounds like what y'all share is like that actually gets challenged and dissolves and and out of that comes strength but it's not something that can just happen like that and it and it, i think it takes an actual like you know recession of that neurocognitive shield apparently it's a protective thing that 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 exists the thing that you said about the funeral is beautiful but i don't really understand this but like being so close to cancer and everything it was it you know the awareness maybe a feeling of like i don't know if i'm gonna you know much well like Sanjay don't say that like i won't say dying young but in the sense of like we just don't know and it somehow at least made me want to do the most like with the education I got with the people that believed in me I'm like if I pass tomorrow I'm like it was just in vain if it wasn't outward like like that was all an investment and like the advice you've gotten like it just dies with you if you're not like doing something with it to like potentiate it and then I heard this song too like it's by uh, Lucas Lucas Graham Luke Graham whoever the, the, the big singer is but he has a song called Funeral and what you described I think was very much like that like oh, Lucas Graham yeah just like you know, and then you get, I think anyone that listens to that realizes their own mortality and, and reflects. And I think then the kindness and productivity of Geo or all are showing, you know, comes out of that. I just always say it's amazing what humans are equipped with. Um, but a lot of times we just sleep on it and treat each other more hatefully and, and, you know, polarizationally, I don't know if that's a word, because we're just forgetting about the delicateness of a relationship of words of mentality. So, you know, Thank you all so much. This was absolutely phenomenal. I, I, cathartic, humbling. Um, okay. I just, you know, they hopefully don't know, but y'all are amazing. And I, I feel like we could talk for hours and hours. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>